Navigating the travel world doesn't have to be complicated. Whether you want to hack your points and miles, figure out where to travel next, or you just need advice on an ethical dilemma. I'm Aislinn Green, host of Unpacked by Afar. And in the brand new season, we are unpacking the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry, one conversation at a time. Topics like the sexiness of travel insurance and the perils of quote unquote bad tourism, and even the secrets to flying with children and not losing your mind in the process. Listen to Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is the Secret Life of Canada Crash Course. Just a little bit of history. So today's crash course is about home children. Okay, yeah. I've heard a bit about home children. Yes, good. Well, I know they were children. <laughs> Clue from the number UK. one. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> good guess. Yes. Um, they were shipped from their homes uh, to work in Canada. So... I don't know, home children seems like a bit of a weird name choice. Yeah, it is a bit of a weird name in the respect that the children wouldn't be home. They were actually taken away from their homes. So Canada became a country in 1867, and two years later, in 1869, they started taking in children from the British Isles, who were deemed poor or destitute or orphaned. Many would end up coming here and being used as farm workers and domestics. The program went on almost up until 1948, and more than 100,000 children would be sent here during those years. Over 10% of Canadians are thought to be descendants of British home children. Oh, wow. I didn't know it was that many. That's, that's huge. <laughs> it is huge. Yeah, I was surprised by that, too. And actually, I found out about home children because a friend of mine who is a descendant of a home child told me the story of his grandfather. Hi, I'm Alan Dilworth. I'm a theatre director from Toronto. And I am the grandson of Thomas Selby. So Alan and I were at a theater conference. Of course we were because we were in theater (laughs) a couple of years ago. And uh, we were on a break and he just told me the story of his grandfather and how he became one of those thousands of children that were sent to Canada in what would be called the British Child Immigration Movement. And... I mean, the story just stayed with me for years. I was years ago. I can imagine that that would stay with you for a while. That must be pretty shocking to find out. Yeah, I mean, it was like a 10-minute break, and then he was like, let's go back in. I was like, wait, what happened? Yeah, so... What? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Okay, so how did this start, and, you know, why did they decide that children would get sent to Canada? How did this decision come to be? Well, there was a huge societal shift going on in the UK at this point. I mean, think about the Industrial Revolution. People were out of work, families were huge, and city life was very hard. At that time, you know, if you got ill or there was a work accident, there was no system to help you. Poverty was everywhere, and many children would be placed in orphanages or homes. And those homes weren't really great either. A lot of them were very overcrowded. Right. I feel like I've seen this in many, uh, many a period drama that, you know, child labor was definitely a thing. Oh, it was a huge thing. And one of the people responsible for starting this program was a guy by the name of Robert Chambers, who stood in front of the British Parliament at the time and said, London has got too full of children. Oh, he sounds really nice. What a cool guy. No, he was not great. And he told Parliament that they should send the quote-unquote surplus children to the colonies. Ew. Everybody went for it, I know. And the program became known as the Child Migrant Scheme. Uh, Of course, no Indigenous people would be consulted. No. I mean, 
you know. Hey, everybody, we're going to send 100,000 children to <sighs> your country without permission. Oh, God. Because this is like right after Canada's form. Mm-hmm. The Indian Act is about to become a formalized, you know, document. That's right. And this is also the period that the Canadian government was setting up residential schools. So lovely, lovely. What I can say is that this would have been a truly terrible time to be a child. Like none of the things that we think about, you know, how precious children are and how sensitive they are. That was not going on in this time period in this colonial time. While England was colonizing Canada and ruining Indigenous children's lives, it was also obsessed with class. Mm -hmm. This was a big deal there. It still is actually a big deal there. England felt like it could decide what it could do to its own people that it deemed low class or poor. Many in the UK that were pushing this program thought they were helping children. You know, they thought, Let's bring young, poor children to Canada and give them families, you know, essentially get them adopted. And the older children can get a roof over their head in exchange for being farmhands until they're 18 years old. That was the thought. That sounds terrible. That sounds like a really miserable existence and hard and sad and... And terrifying, terrifying. Yeah, difficult to recover from too, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah, of course. And, you know, especially because some of these children were were babies, you know, anywhere from age two on up. You know, you can't imagine being sent away, being put on a ship. Some found loving homes, but most did not. Here's Alan explaining what happened to his grandfather, Tom. My grandfather's name was Tom Selby, and he was born on September 10th, 1899 in Southwark, London, England. And he was um, born in what they called St. Saviour's Parish, in the Shad Thames neighborhood, some people might know. 50 years before my grandfather was born, Charles Dickens set portions of Oliver Twist in Shad Thames, where my grand, (laughs) right? (laughs) (laughs) Where my grandfather lived from his birth until he was eight years old and then was put on a boat to Canada. You know, he and his brother who was uh, three years older than him. It was a neighborhood known for its poverty, crime, and famously the presence of street children. Um, They had nine siblings, and there were only two of them that were sent to Canada as home children. My my grandfather, again, and his brother, Morris. There was so much poverty, and there was hard, hard living, and class was very rigid. The assumption was that most poor children were orphans. Or because they were poor, that meant that their parents didn't care for them. Yeah, but many home children did have living parents who cared for them. You know, some parents were told that their children would be sent away for a while and then brought back. That wasn't true. Some parents weren't even informed that their children were being sent away. They would be notified after their children were already at sea. And it sounds really similar to the residential school system, you know, in terms of treatment, not necessarily, you know, culturally, definitely um, a different set of goals, but, you know, very British, I think, ideals are present there. Well, the colonial ideals of like, we Mm -hmm. know better, Mm -hmm. this system knows better than you. Or your family. Or your family. Yeah, very different, but they had, you know, some similarities there. Canada was also marketed as this kind of child wonderland. So a lot of parents were told, you know what, they're going to be in a place with really clean air because London had a lot of um, pollution at this time because of the Industrial Revolution. They're going to have open arms of adoptive parents or kind farmers that are going to help your kids get on their feet. You know, that 
that whole thing. And because of poverty, many parents were not given a choice for their children to stay. It was just like they're going. Alan's grandfather, Tom, and his brother, Morris, had parents. And despite that, they were sent anyway. When the boys were leaving, their mother tried to send them with something to remember her by. I think I remember hearing a story about a pair of shoes. Like his mother really wanted to send him, want him to know he was, how much he was loved. And I think I remember the story. I think it was a pair of shoes in particular, something about that being special. Wow. A pair of shoes. Okay, so Tom was eight and his brother Morris was 11 when they were put on a boat to come to Canada. I can't imagine processing that at such a young age. So what happened to them next? So Alan told me that Tom and Morris were put on a ship leaving from Liverpool, England with you know, many other children, and the boat was called the SS Tunisian. This boat would be a boat that transported many children back and forth, and what it seems from records that I found, Tom and Morris would arrive in Quebec in May 1908, one month after leaving England. So they were on that ship for a month, which is also like, wow. Once they got there, once they got into Quebec, they were put on a train. So my grandfather went on a a CP railway train from Montreal to Stratford, Ontario, and then they were officially admitted to the homes there, the home, and then they were sent to two different farms in nearby Gray County, which is kind of just north of Stratford, a little closer to Georgian Bay. And so they were there. Now they both went to two separate farms. My grandpa, it was a terrible situation. My grandpa got there and uh, he lived in the barn. You know, we know that he was beaten. He tried to run away and then they caught him and brought him back. Then his brother Morris, who was at another farm, came and found him and they ran away to Toronto. So when my grandfather got on that boat, he was eight years old and his brother was 11. When they ran away to Toronto, my grandfather would have been 10 years old and his brother would have been 13. That is incredible. And how did they make it from Stratford to Toronto? And and for folks who aren't from Ontario, it's about a two-hour drive from Stratford to Toronto. And I mean, that's with good traffic. Uh, And, you know, they're 10 and 13. So to walk or or even hitchhike. Yeah, I had the same question. Because of agriculture, I'm sure there was movement back and forth. And I don't know how exceptional it would have been for them to be, you know, kind of trying to make their way to the city. I'm just, I'm not quite sure about that. But I mean, but yet truly remarkable. And they had an older brother who was, uh, would have been, I think, maybe at this point, maybe 19 years old or um, maybe 20. He had come across on a ship and had set himself up in Toronto in the East End. And I don't know if they had received letters on the farm knowing in some way that he was there somewhere, but there was no internet, you know, there's no cell phones, you know, no Facebook, and they kind of just forged, headed out to the city, and eventually they did locate him. They found him. They kept asking around, and they found him, and then the three of them ended up living together for some time. There are so many different experiences of these children. You know, some did have a better quality of life when they moved to Canada than they did in England, but a large percentage were physically and sexually abused and traumatized. Sometimes they would be sent from farm to farm, never being able to form solid relationships. Some would even end up committing suicide. I imagine the fact that many were told that they had to work until they were almost 18 meant that they were exploited, you know, until they were adults. 
That's right. And many didn't get any education. Alan told me it was unclear what kind of education his grandfather had. You know, what really stands out to me, though, about this story is the shame that so many carried, so much so that so many never told these stories to their families or would reveal where they came from. Tom rarely spoke about his life growing up, but for his family, there would be clues. My grandfather had very, very low tolerance for the abuse of those who are vulnerable to power, especially in a workplace, like very low. And this is what happens to people who have been abused frequently, right? You either have a a no tolerance for it or you become an abuser. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's pretty amazing that his grandfather went through all of this and, you know, and I know we've, we've talked a lot about how these stories in history remain buried because of shame. Mm -hmm. So what did Tom end up doing once he and Morris ran away? I mean, Obviously, Alan's here to tell the story, Mm -hmm. and and so he survived, right? He did. He continued to work. I mean, he ended up getting connected with the kind of early oil-burning furnaces business, which became a kind of a business explosion in a great way, uh, in the right way, Um, in those days in Toronto, uh, because it became some of the technology made it possible for people to do that in their own homes, but also they started doing them in very large buildings. Thomas would throw himself into his work, and he did well. He found a woman he loved and he had a family. But, you know, his story is really unique because in the end, he was reunited with his mother. She would come to Canada along with some of his other siblings. It was a direct manifestation of how terrible the assumption was that poverty equates to not caring for your children. There was a lot of love in Thomas's family. And I think proof in the pudding that, you know, my certainly my grandfather you know, with open arms, welcomed them. And they were all reunited in the beach neighborhood in Toronto. For the children who survived, some would try to leave Canada and make it back home to England. In World War I, many enlisted just to get back home to find their families. A good number would also fight in World War II as well. The program eventually ended in the late 1940s as people began to realize they shouldn't treat children badly. In 2010, the United Kingdom formally apologized for the program, and it would really open the door for the survivors and descendants of these children to learn more about their experiences. And what has Canada done to, you know, to recognize this history? Well, in 2009, Jason Kenney, who was the immigration minister at that time, said, the issue is primarily a matter of British policy, and no one in Canada is asking for an apology. <laughs> oh, God, really? <laughs> yeah, and the weird thing about that, actually, or not weird at all, is that every source that you read about this in Canada quotes that at the end, like, this is what the Canadian government said. So you really get the idea that a lot of the descendants and people who went through it do want recognition and they do want, you know, an apology. So what I've learned here is that in the 19th century and for decades, Canada accepted children like Tom and Morris Selby from the UK in a child migration labor program. Thousands of children as young as two years old would be sent by ship to Canada and, you know, they would have different experiences, but they would all be, you know, forced to live in a strange place with strange families where they were, you know, not treated well for a lot of the time. Some would find homes and some would not, and others like Tom would escape and manage to make a better life for himself. And now it's thought that 10% of all Canadians are thought to be descendant of a British home child. That's a lot. 
It is a lot. But, you know, it's another in our never-ending podcast of what in the world were people thinking back then. But I think it just shows how even the little bits of stories, you know, the little memories that people reveal and tell can be so valuable to descendants like Alan and his family and for all of us to learn more about these stories. You know, even though a lot of people don't want to share their stories because of the shame and the trauma, you know, how, um, I don't know, grateful I am or how important these stories are to hear because they really do shed so much light on this place. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.